Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up, and let's get started on today's podcast. Welcome back to the Leanne Ward Nutrition Podcast. I'm so happy you're here with me today, and I hope that our guest expert today leaves you feeling empowered to nourish and fuel your body and your life. But firstly, I need to start off by thanking our generous sponsor, Protein Supplies Australia. They're an all-natural nutrition company without the crap. At Protein Supplies Australia, they create health-conscious alternatives for those who care about how they fuel their body. All their products are natural, and you'll never find unnecessary additives, artificials, cheap fillers, or hidden ingredients in them. They are all manufactured here in Brisbane, so they're a local company, and if you'd like to support them, please use the podcast discount code, which is LWPODCAST15. So LWPODCAST15 for 15% off the entire Protein Supplies Australia range. On today's podcast, we have Dr. Tara Swart, a neuroscientist, medical doctor, executive coach, senior lecturer at MIT Sloan, and author of bestseller, The Source, Open Your Mind, Change Your Life. Wow, you guys are in for such a treat today. You can find out more about Dr. Tara on her website, which is taraswart.com, or follow her on Instagram, which is at Dr. with a D-R, Tara Swart. In today's podcast, we are diving deep into our brain and how to train it and harness its power. Dr. Tara starts off by telling us about how she came to be working in the space of medicine and neuroscience and how understanding neuroscience, epigenetics, and brain health can help us live more productive and happier lives. We then chat about how we can optimize our overall health to assist our brain health and what a healthy brain pattern of eating is. We discuss lifestyle influences on brain health, such as sleep, meditation, gut health, and how we can create long-lasting change with our habits. We talk about self-sabotage, a growth versus fixed mindset, visualization, manifestation, and limiting beliefs. Guys, this is one epic podcast you do not want to miss. So let's get started with Dr. Tara right now. I really hope that you guys enjoy today's podcast. And again, thank you to our wonderful sponsor, Protein Supplies Australia. Welcome, Tara, to the podcast today. I'm so excited to have you on as our expert guest. Thank you, Leanne, for having me. And it was tricky for us to find a time to speak being in the UK and Australia, but I'm glad we did. I know. And I'm so glad that you're able to share all your wonderful expertise from halfway around the world. That's the beauty of the world that we live in today. Podcasting and the internet and everything just makes it so wonderful. It is pretty amazing. I mean, if you think about if something like this global pandemic had happened before we had all this technology it would have been so much harder Mm. to keep in touch with family and friends and work so although you know it's a mixed blessing at least there are ways that we can keep in touch with each other and do things like this. I couldn't agree more and I love seeing like photos on Facebook and that sort of thing of like 95 year old grandparents um, you know facetiming their little grandchildren I think it's the sweetest thing and it is a benefit of you know an upside of of this big global pandemic for all the negative that it's brought us it is Nice to focus on some of the little positives sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Now, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? I guess how you came to working in this incredible space of medicine and neuroscience and being an expert um, around training your brain. Thank you. So um, I was born in London in the UK, but my parents are Indian. And um, so it's a bit of a cliche, really, but they really wanted me to be a doctor. And 
Um, I guess at that age, like coming from a culture where there's like a lot of like duty and responsibility, I sort of just went on the path that was laid out for me. I, you know, I could because I was good at science mm-hmm. and that sort of worked out. And I actually really loved being a doctor. And one of the, you know, gifts for me of being a doctor was that I could, I could travel with that job. So I was, you know, blessed to live and work in Darwin for two years. So I've got a really strong connection to Australia. My best friend lives there and I've got lots of friends there and everything. Um, But what I found sort of later in life was that despite traveling the world, despite doing like all sorts of different types of medicine and then specializing in psychiatry, but even then, you know, doing lots of different types of psychiatry, that I felt like I wasn't really on the path that I wanted to be on. And Mm -hmm. I had done this PhD in neuroscience whilst I was at medical school. Um, And so it was quite a big step. But after seven years of being a practicing doctor, I I quit that and I came back to London and I did a coaching course. And then I started working with really stressed people. It was around the time of the global financial crisis. So you go Mm. from one global crisis to another. (laughs) so at that time, you know, Pete's having a former psychiatrist as a coach was very valid for the, you know, the stressed people, particularly in financial services. So I sort of carved out a bit of a niche and getting people like that to understand about the brain body connection, about how mm. to build resilience to stress, about how to create good habits that stick became, you know, the sort of the thing that I do. And it's so similar to what you do. That's really interesting. Um, so then I started doing more speaking and really bringing the neuroscience more into it. And I feel like at some point in my career, all the threads from the different things that I'd done before made sense. And that's such a, you know, that's such a lovely feeling. And it takes you more into the world of sort of laws of attraction and manifestation of what you really want and things like that. So yeah. it's, it's a, quite a unique story, but I think it's one that people can use if they're thinking about a big career change or all the way down to just trying to create some good, healthy habits that, you know, you can make stick in your life and maybe even your family's lives. Mm, couldn't agree more. And I love, I've always been sort of, I guess, almost drawn to the field of that sort of manifestation and that sort of thing. But I do find it's sometimes when you see on social media, it is a little bit kind of woo woo and that sort of thing, or the people that are sort of saying those messages, you're kind of like, mm. but I just love that you have the actual expertise and the credentials and all the schooling and training that you've done to back up what you're saying as well. So I love that. And I'd love for you to tell our listeners a little bit more about how understanding how our brain works in the field of like neuroscience, how does that help us to live um, more productive and happier lives just by understanding how our, how our brain works? Well, at the most basic level, if you think about the things that most of us want in life, which is good health, to be happy, Mm -hmm. to have good relationships, not just romantic, but with our families and our friends and, you know, to do some sort of meaningful work that means that, you know, we have enough money to have like a a decent life, not necessarily like striving for like too much, but just, you know, having the right job that earns you enough money, you're happy, you're healthy. And, you know, you've got some good relationships, all of those, if you, if you pin it back and back, it goes, it's to do with like how you act in the real world. Mm -hmm. That behind that is how you think what your sort of subconscious beliefs are. And then behind that is the very deep sort of, you know, entrenched neural patterns of what kind of person you are, what was expected of you, um, you know, how much potential you have, how much of a growth mindset you have. And of course, all of those thoughts and beliefs and emotions, they come from your brain. And, and you know, they then lead to the actions and the habits and the behaviors. Mm. And so really, all of those things that we want in life come back to 
the way that our brain works. And then if you want, if you take it even further back into the more physical realm, like where you work, then the condition of your brain and your body, or if you think of them as one system, mm-hmm. if that if that's optimal, then you can manage your emotions, you can think positively, you can act with confidence, you can take a risk, and that's more likely to lead to all of the things we just spoke about, which are, you know, you reaching your potential at work, you finding, you know, the best partner that you can be with, uh, you feeling in control of your happiness and your resilience, um, and you making good choices about your health. Mm, couldn't agree more. And I love how you've just, like, it's so deep, isn't it? There's so much, like, you could probably spend an hour on this podcast just talking about the tiniest little concept because there's so many different layers. And I always talk to my clients about um, what I call their story or their belief or what they think they're expected to do. And for so many of my ladies that I coach, it's around, like, they grew up with that big girl story. Like, I'm a big girl. My family has always been big. And I'm like, the more you tell yourself that story, the more you're going to keep believing it, the more you're going to keep living that life. And so there are just so many layers and so many simple things that people, I guess, don't even really think about. Like if you can just optimize that and change your story and change your belief patterning, you can almost change your life. Like it sounds so cliche, doesn't it? But it's it's actually, there's research and science behind it, isn't there? 100%. And that's why it feels like such a privilege to be a scientist that, that has sort of meandered into that world of not just health and wellness, because that makes sense, but more the sort of positive thinking mm. and Um, So what you're actually talking about is from a field called epigenetics, Mm -hmm. which is the influence of the environment on your genes. And that's everything from what you just said, which is if you grew up in a family and it's like, we're a big family, you'll always be a big girl. Mm -hmm. And you just choose to believe that and you eat in the same way that your family did and you're sedentary in the way that your family were, Mm -hmm. then you'll fulfill the genes that you were born with. If you decide to be very physically active, to eat in a completely different way, to, you know, to monitor your sleep um, length and hang out with people who are into exercise and, you know, who sort of have the mentality that they can, you know, proactively change their physique, whether it's to do with muscle or fat, Mm. then you can actually change how your genes express themselves. And the, the analogy I like for that, which is so super practical, is a shoelace. And you know how, like, shoelaces on like sneakers have a little bit of plastic at either end yeah yeah if you live your best lifestyle behaviors then you keep that plastic intact and it keeps your genetic material in the best possible form that it can be in Mm -hmm. if you smoke and drink and sit on the couch all day and you know sort of just believe that you're stuck with the body that you've got then you're allowing the ends of those shoelaces to fray and to come apart. And that's where damage occurs to your genes and your DNA and basically leads you down the worst possible outcome of the genes that you could have had. So, you know, going back to Darwin, coincidentally, um, there was a time where we all believed that DNA was everything and, you know, Mm. that the nurture element didn't make as much difference. And then it became a bit more balanced. But With this field of epigenetics, we're saying that you're you're not stuck with the genes that you were born with. In fact, you're not even born with the genes that your parents were born with because their lifestyle behaviors have changed their genes by the time they conceive you. And even more shockingly than that, we now believe that epigenetics means that your genes are affected by your grandparents' lifestyle, not just your parents. Um, And that, yeah. 
The research from that comes from the survivors of the Holocaust and the Dutch famine. And it shows that people who are under severe stress, even if they weren't pregnant at the time, even if it was affecting their sperm and eggs before they became pregnant, Mm. that it changes the stress responses of not just their children, but also their grandchildren. And this would apply equally to things like obesity um, and other tendencies like um, you know, whether you stay in a long relationship or you have several relationships, sexual orientation, um, likelihood of getting diabetes. I mean, so many things. It's like you said, we could do one podcast on just like one <laughs> element of those things. But I think knowing about epigenetics, understanding that you're not just stuck with, you know, the genetic inheritance that you've got is is super important as well as the neuroplasticity angle. Mm. Oh my goodness. I, I have like a million questions I want to ask you about that, but I'll stay on track and I'll try to give our listeners what I feel like they'll um, get the most benefit out of, but I would love to have you back on the podcast one day to chat just a, all about epigenetics. But how can our listeners or how can our listeners at home optimize their overall health in some really simple strategies in able to assist their brain health? Because we'll deep dive further into why their brain health is so important in terms of habit forming and that sort of thing. But let's start broadly with our overall health. Um, how can we optimize that in in turn then optimize our brain health? Yeah. So the answer to this is not going to be any different to what, what you've been saying, you know, all along. And but the mm. way that I describe it is rest, fuel, hydrate, oxygenate, and simplify. But basically, it does start with sleep. Sleep Mm -hmm. is so important to the brain and the body. Um, So 98% of people need to sleep seven to nine hours per night. Mm -hmm. Um, That's because, and so, you know, that's the kind of general advice that we all hear, but the sort of really like nerdy science behind it is that there's a cleansing system in the brain that takes eight hours to work. And basically, all the fluid around and in the brain flushes toxins out of the brain. And we used to think it was quite a passive process of just trickling through and cleaning. But now we know it's almost like one of those drive-through car washes, you know, with the jets of, <laughs> of liquid. <laughs> so it's a, very, it's a forcible flushing out of toxins that build up during the day and, you know, over the years of your life from things like stress, um, alcohol, processed food. And also just the wear and tear of, you know, sort of like of aging and Mm -hmm. and life. And so if we disrupt that good quality seven to nine hours of sleep on a regular basis and we don't flush out those toxins, we actually physically see on brain scans um, higher levels of the sort of um, toxins that build up to cause dementing diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So the the beta amyloid plaques and tangles, the tau proteins, disrupting sleep allows those to accumulate um, and can lead to the symptoms of Alzheimer's coming on earlier than it would have if you'd like maintained good quality sleep all of your life. Wow. And you mentioned, obviously, you know, one, one bad night's sleep isn't sort of going to do it. But I'm thinking, what about if you're having poor sleep for large stretches? And I'm thinking purely about new mums here, where it could be like a good 12 months where your sleep is, is pretty terrible, but there's not really anything you can do about it. Is there any research that um, long periods of, I guess you probably know where I'm going with this question, long periods of not getting enough sleep can still have that impact long-term or are we talking really like years and years? I'm really glad you asked that question because obviously new mums just panic when they hear that. And yeah. the, the good news is that there's there must be some sort of hormonal protection around 
becoming a new mum. We don't know the mechanism of it, but we do know that women don't get dementia more than men. Mm. And, you know, the fact is that women are still usually the person that gets up at night for children. So that's, it's a good enough study to compare male and female parents later in life. And there's no evidence that women get, you know, worse effects of that. Mm -hmm. But if it's not to do with parenting and it, and, you know, you disrupt your sleep, it doesn't have to be years and years. I mean, Four days of of uh, consecutive disrupted sleep causes some irreversible issues in the brain. Wow, only four days. And I guess that's also completely compounded by if you smoke, if you drink, if you don't have a healthy diet, if you're not regularly exercising, it probably just compounds all those issues as well, doesn't it? Yeah. So like I said, it's rest, fuel, hydrate, oxygenate, simplify. So I'm big on sleep being a neuroscientist, um, yeah. but the fuel is, again, everything that you talk about, the healthy balance, nutrition, dense diet. But there are some specifics um, around diet, which are to include as many good fats as possible. So the avocado, the olive oil, mm-hmm. the oily fish like salmon and mackerel um, and nuts and seeds that have the micronutrients and hydrating foods like salads, cucumber and fruits like melon. Mm-hmm. And then all the dark foods. So berries are good, but the darker the skin, like a blueberry is better than a raspberry. And with mm. beans, the black beans better than the, um, uh, you know, chickpea. Mm-hmm. So um, the, there's, you know, phytonutrients in the skin of darker foods are really good for the brain. Um, mm. They actually lead to something called neurogenesis, which connects into the, the exercise bit next. So neurogenesis is the creation of new neurons in the brain from little embryonic cells. We know that in adulthood, we can connect up existing neurons through synapses and make new pathways. We believe that only in the hippocampus area of the brain, where we build memories, that there's any sort of significant amount of neurogenesis in adult brains. Obviously, there's a lot in toddler brains and teenage brains. Um, but eating the darker skinned foods can contribute to neurogenesis in the adult brain. So if you've got, you're worried about memory, that's a good place to, to make a little tweak in your lifestyle. Mm. And then aerobic exercise um, contributes to neurogenesis. And I have a bit of a cheat here, which is that if you regularly do aerobic exercise, then the turnover of new cells is 12 to 14%. If you have been sedentary for some time, which you know, I know that during COVID and lockdown, some people have just become demotivated. They've gone off their sort of usual schedule. Mm. Then the good news is that if you restart aerobic exercise after having been sedentary, then the turnover of new cells in the brain goes up to an amazing 30%. So that's a reason to get started. (laughs) That's not motivational. I don't know what it is. I know. Um, that's my excuse to sort of not feel bad about, you know, when I go (laughs) off my schedule and I start again, I know it's better for my brain. So, um, but you know, really one of the things I do say is if you, if you have been working on a habit and it slips for whatever reason, don't waste the energy beating yourself up, just start again. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, and although the statistics wouldn't be as amazing for everything, like it is with the aerobic exercise, it's, it's more important to channel your energy into starting again than to berating yourself because you gave up or, you know, didn't maintain what you were, what you were trying to do. So, um, hydration, I sort of mentioned in keeping with nutrition, but, and you do actually get more hydrated by eating hydrating foods and by Mm -hmm. drinking water, because that tends to pass through more, but, you know, ideally we need to drink, um, half a liter of water for every 15 kilos of our body weight per day. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I like that formula because it's not, you know, it can't be the same for, for me and a six foot tall guy. So I think it's better to work out, you know, what it is for you. And, you know, with my clients who are still largely men in financial services, so a bit different to your cohort. But I mean, I'm so shocked by the fact that so many of them just don't drink any water. Yeah. And, you know, I sort of go on about it at first. And then they say, you know, I'd really like to work on like building my mental resilience. And I say, we can't do that if you're not drinking any water. And then after a month of just drinking more water, they say, oh, I feel so much better. I can't believe how much difference it made. Um, And, you know, if you've got an elderly relative, um, dehydration can cause confusion and falls and things Mm -hmm. like that. And you'll notice the first thing the paramedics do is, is, you know, put in a saline drip. And sometimes that alone can make the person feel completely better. So the power of hydration, I think, is very underestimated. Um, And then just quickly with exercise, and the brain, if you enjoy the exercise that you're doing, mm. you actually get extra endorphins released and, and extra growth benefits in the brain. So, you know, dragging yourself to the gym, you know, because you think you should, is mm. not as good as doing like a Zumba class or a spin class, you know, something that you really enjoy. And finally, this, the simplify bit is, is important for the brain. The brain doesn't like unfinished tasks. It doesn't like multitasking. So, Sometimes just reducing your choices and keeping things really simple and adding in a bit of mindfulness. That's the thing that really takes all of those physical pieces and takes them to the next level and allows you to move forward in terms of being somebody that, you know, makes their habits stick, that, you know, keeps going when things are tough. Mm. So, so yeah, those are the five pillars. And I know it's really similar to what you talk about, but it's, it's recognizing that those are important for the brain, not just the body, I think is a bit of a a game changer for people. Yeah, absolutely. And I have to ask this question because I know all our listeners at home are thinking about it. Now, when you mentioned dark foods, does chocolate count or dark chocolate count? (laughs) Um, It actually does. It it actually does. So um, I've got... What about the antioxidants? (laughs) It's got to be over 80%. Mm -hmm. So basically, because the the cocoa bean is a dark-skinned bean as well. Mm. I have a funny story around that. I... um, my husband is like my project because he was like not very healthy when I met him. And obviously that's all changed. And so for several evenings, I would say to him, would you like a piece of dark chocolate? And he was sort of like, oh, yes. Thinking like, I can't believe she's letting me have chocolate. And then he obviously worked it out because after about five days, he said, is dark chocolate good for you? And I said, yes. And he was like, oh, so I don't want it anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, I love it. <laughs> now, um, Thank you so much for, I guess, establishing just what I would call like the foundations of health, but actually linking that again to like improvements in your brain health. And when people think about wanting to get ahead in life and get that promotion and, you know, be the best mom they can be for their kids, like it all really does come down to our thoughts and our patterns and our behaviors, which comes back to our brain health. So really thinking about those foundations of health, I always talk about for good health, but also for brain health as well, just is such a powerful message. So people at home can really understand, I guess, how powerful it is for every aspect of your life. So thank you for those. Um, And I'd love to now deep dive more into like habit creation because so many listeners on our podcast say to me, Leanne, like you have such expert guests on. I learned so much from you, but I just can't do it. You know, like I know the apple is, is healthier than the hamburger, but I just, I can't do it or I can't get there or I start exercising and then life gets busy and everything falls off track. So how can we sort of harness the power of our brain to create habits that actually stick and that last long term. What are your what are your suggestions for this, Dr. Tara? <laughs> I've actually got quite a few things I'd love to talk about here that I think is so important. Um, one is particularly important for women, 
and one is general. So I'll start with the general one, which is Mm -hmm. for the brain, if you take on a big change that's challenging, there is a motivation issue there. And unless your motivation and willpower are very, very strong, which is something you can build through neuroplasticity, but it takes that effort building up, Mm. then the likelihood that you're going to get to a tough place where you want to give up is quite high. Mm-hmm. And the way around that is, so I, my sort of, one of my quotes is change 10 things by 1% rather than one thing by 10%. So instead of saying, you know, I'm going to start this new three times a week exercise regime from nothing. Mm-hmm. If you said, I'm going to go to bed half an hour earlier, I'm going to drink two extra glasses of water. I'm going to walk 2000 steps more than I normally do. I'm going to, you know, exclude one small thing from my diet that is like, you know, something I know I shouldn't be eating and add in one good thing that I've just heard about on this podcast. Mm -hmm. And you choose 10 little things like that. Then that's much easier for you to do than one big thing. And also all of those little things, they add up and they have a cumulative effect. So the fact that you're a bit more hydrated, a bit more active, a bit more well-rested not only gives you the benefits of each of those things, but they have what's called global benefits on the brain. Mm. So once you've embedded those habits for, let's say, three months, and I have another trick to add in for this, then because your brain's in better condition, and they don't all have to be brain-related things, um, but some of them ideally should be, because your brain's in better condition, you can then over time start to take on bigger and better challenges. But if you start with these micro-habits, then what you're doing is you're learning how to embed little habits, but you're also improving the condition of your brain. And so you're building yourself up to a place where you can, you can say, now I'm regularly going to do three, you know, exercise three times a week. But I also think part of this learning is what we talked about earlier, which is if you go on holiday or, you know, something, you change jobs or something and you stop doing your exercise three times a week, mm. that, that your motivation and resilience is at such a point that, you can restart it and you start to get examples of that. Okay, the last time I stopped doing that one habit, I restarted it as quickly as I could and I got back into it really quickly. Mm-hmm. Then once your brain knows that, you've basically built up your resilience. But what I also suggest is to take quarterly themes throughout the year. So don't pick 10 things and try to change them all at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Do it like, you know, three things for the first quarter of the year. And then once you feel like, okay, those three things, they're tiny things, so they'd be easy to embed. They're, mm-hmm. they're totally habits now. Move on to the next three and keep doing that. And so, you know, you could easily do 12 things in a year. And let's say two of them didn't stick, then you've still got 10 at the end of a year. And what I find with my journaling is if I take on small things and I do them in quarterly themes, then when I look back after a year, I, d- I genuinely say those 10 things that were not things that I was doing are now things that I do without even thinking about it. Mm. Um, You know, and sometimes it's as small as regularly take my supplements. But when I was traveling a lot, that was something that, you know, definitely sort of, because I would change what I was taking when I traveled, then I wouldn't start back to what I was doing when I was at home. And, you know, it was always all over the place. And so I worked on that one small thing. And then I looked back and I was like, oh, I always take my supplements. Like I wouldn't even, you know, think of that as a thing now. So that's the sort of, underlying like practical part of it but the the science behind each time you bring on a change like that is that it needs to be raised in your awareness like 
this is what I need to do and why you want to do it. So it's not enough to say I need to exercise three times a week. You have to have your why, because I want to look like this in a bikini when I go to the Maldives or Mm -hmm. I, you know, I want to be, I want to get my body like prepared to have another child. Um, So if you've got your why, then it helps you in those moments when you want to eat the burger instead of the apple kind of thing. Then the next step is focused attention. So looking for opportunities to practice your good behavior. But also, you know, understanding when the temptation comes in. Does it come in when you're tired or does it come in when um, you've had a tough day at work? So, Mm. again, understanding what are the triggers that might prevent you from doing it. And then the third stage is deliberate practice, which is, you know, making yourself do that thing so many times that the repetition creates the thicker pathway in your brain that means that that becomes your natural habit. So what we're working towards with all of this is creating it until it becomes your default pathway in your brain so that you no longer have to force yourself. It becomes natural. Mm -hmm. And then the last part is accountability. And that's really what you're there for, Leanne, which is for people who are trying to do this, it's much easier to to kid yourself and say, oh, you know, oh, it's okay. I didn't take my supplement today. It's okay. I didn't exercise this week. But when they've got a Leanne, they can't get away with that. So Not on my watch. No. (laughs) I love that. Such practical advice. And I love that. Um, again, you say that as a true expert, because this is what I tell my clients, but just in a, a whole nother way, I have a 10% better mantra on this podcast. So I always say to people, instead of trying to change everything at once, let's just aim for 10% better. And I get them to think about like a staircase. So every little challenge that we change 10% better, we go up the staircase. And at the end of 12 months is the top of the staircase. Rather than people try to overhaul their diet and their lifestyle, they double their exercise, they halve their nutrition and starve themselves. They get to the end of the six-week challenge, yes, they lose the weight, but they push themselves so hard that they haven't embedded this as a behavior. They crack, they put all the weight back on again. And they're just constantly cycling through all of these like eight or 12-week fitness challenges every year, but never actually changing their habits. So the way I like to think about the staircase is that they're changing their baseline over time. And then if things get hard or they get sick, they go down a step rather than going all the way back to the bottom, which is what so many people do. So that resonates with me so much because that's like, how I sort of how I teach my clients as well, which is wonderful. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, I didn't actually know that, but that just that is so interesting to me that you know what the, re- the research from the science says is working. I know that you work with a lot of people, so that is when I hear that, I just think, okay, I'm the I'm the research person, but that is actually working in real life, and I love that. Mm. I wanted to add in the sort of extra tip that I have for women because yes. I know you have a lot of female um, followers, so. I think for us, because often we're putting other people before ourselves, Mm. um, there can be, you know, a sort of a physical resilience wearing down that affects us mentally. And we, and, and that connection wasn't made until very recently. So if you're stressed, if you're, you know, maybe like rushing out meals or skipping meals or sort of having takeaway too often, maybe having a glass of wine a bit too often, um, it starts to erode the quality and diversity of your gut bacteria. And these bacteria, they're not all actually bacteria. They can transform themselves into viruses or parasites. And because they're very simple cells, all they are focused on is surviving. And so if they need sugar to survive, or if they need caffeine to survive, you're the person that has to eat or drink that for them to get it. And A scary thing that I found out quite recently is we've known for a long time about the neural connection between the brain and the gut. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And we know that the you know the gut bacteria communicate with cells in the gut in terms of like how hungry we are or how full we are or sort of what sort of foods we need to eat. So, for example, if we have been really stressed and the gut bacteria give out um, stress signals, then we get leaky gut syndrome, for example. So there's a connection between the, the gut lining and the bacteria. But those gut bacteria also directly signal to the brain, not through the nerves, but through what's called cytokine transmission, which is releasing chemicals in the blood that go to, you know, through the blood-brain barrier. And so basically, those bacteria can use us as avatars to get what they need to survive. So often cravings, which I'm sure you work with a lot, whether it's a craving for sugar, alcohol, or anything else, is actually caused by your gut bacteria. So when you Mm -hmm. think, oh, you know, I've had a really bad day, I need a glass of wine. When, when you think it's you that's saying that, it's quite hard to hold yourself accountable. I think that considering these bacteria as gremlins in your stomach that are talking to your brain and saying, give me wine because I can break that down into sugar and then I can survive, gives you that one step back that means you're not arguing with yourself, you're arguing with the bacteria in your gut. And I always say to people, are you going to let a bacteria tell you what to eat and what to do? And so I found with, with my female clients that when they've been able to separate that crave, craving or that urge as not being themselves, that's really helped them to make a better decision because there's nothing wrong with having a glass of wine. Mm-hmm. But if you're having it for the wrong reasons mm-hmm. and it's you know going against what you have decided you want to do and need to do for your health and your life, then you should have the choice to not do it. Mm. And so if you understand that disturbed gut microbiome can cause that, I think that helps. But the other thing for, I think, particularly women to understand is that when your gut microbiome isn't in its best condition, your access to your intuition, which depends on the nerves that connect the gut and the brain, is also affected. So at the time that you need to be thinking like, you know, what should I, should I risk taking this promotion? What, what should I do to like look after my family in the best possible way? And you rely on your intuition so much, mm. you can't. And so I, I think it's such a responsibility to keep your gut microbiome in good condition. And um, I'm sure you recommend certain probiotics that are available in Australia, but there are certain strains that are particularly good for mental health. And research shows that if you take a probiotic containing those strains for one month, you can reduce negative thinking, anxiety, insomnia, and some people can even reduce the dose of antidepressant medication that they're on. So this gut-brain thing is much bigger than we thought before. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? And when you were talking about almost like disassociating from the craving, I had a funny thought. I thought, imagine if you named that craving. And when you were talking about having that glass of wine, I just thought to myself, like, pop down, Charlie, you don't need that glass of wine. (laughs) And it almost makes it seem like, as you said, like more manageable, because like I say to my clients, like those negative thoughts in your head are just thoughts. They're not real. So write them down on paper and try to try to talk to those thoughts, like you would be giving advice to your best friend Mm. and same deal with the craving. If you gave it a name and called it a different person, you could almost try to disassociate yourself a little bit from that and make that more manageable to overcome. So I love that. That's an amazing tip. Thank you. I love the naming of it. It's a good one. <laughs> Charlie always wants a glass of wine in my house. <laughs> but um, when you were also talking about like anxiety and depression and that sort of thing, there was some really cool research a few years ago that came out of Australia um, about the SMILES trial. I'm not sure if you've heard of it and talking about how um, 
mental health and depression can be improved purely from eating a Mediterranean style diet for 12 weeks. Um, Obviously, there's a lot more research that needs to go into that. But just the power of food and the power of our gut health um, is just absolutely incredible, isn't it? It's really, you know, excuse the pun, sort of like mind blowing. Mm. And um, I think, you know, the Mediterranean diet is is not dissimilar to what I said before, the good fats, the hydrating foods. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think if somebody has gone from eating a highly processed diet to eating that, I can completely imagine that they feel much better, you know, after 12 weeks physically and mentally. I mean, where where I teach at um, the university in America, I have different catering for my classes to the regular catering. Mm. And it's it's a brain friendly diet, basically. And, you know, people fly from all over the world, they're jet lagged, and it's long days and everything. And at first, everyone was a bit nervous about this healthy diet that we were forcing onto the, you know, executive students. But the feedback, of course, is, I feel so much better. I can actually stay awake in the afternoon. I also ban caffeine in the afternoon. So I risked being really unpopular, but um, (laughs) it worked out well. What if I love it? Oh, and proof is in the pudding, isn't it? When you can tell a bunch of top level executives, we're going to try this and if it doesn't work and it actually does at the end of the day, then that's, that's all the proof I'm sure that they need, which is amazing. Welcome to our healthy break, where I take 30 seconds out of the podcast to tell you about our fabulous sponsor, Protein Supplies Australia, as without them, you wouldn't get to listen to this podcast for free. Our generous sponsor, Protein Supplies Australia, are all about natural nutrition without the crap. They create health-conscious alternatives for those who care about how they fuel their bodies. Their products are completely natural, and you'll never find unnecessary additives, artificials, cheap fillers, or hidden ingredients in them. They are all manufactured here in Brisbane, so they're a local company who I absolutely love for a little assistance with my training and nutrition when needed. I personally use their plant-based and WPI protein powders, their BCAAs, and also their creatine when I'm trying to get some gains in the gym and grow some lean muscle mass. If you'd like to support Protein Supplies Australia, please use the podcast discount code LWPODCAST15 for 15% off the entire range, and we'll link the website and the discount code in the show notes as well. Thank you for tuning into this healthy break. Now let's get straight back to our podcast. Now, following on from um, your wonderful tips around habits and mindset, what about self-sabotage? Because again, so many adults get themselves into a great routine, a great, you know, they're starting to form some wonderful habits and then they just constantly will self-sabotage themselves. And whether it's rewarding themselves for doing something good at the end of the day, you know, they've, they've lost a little bit of weight and the next week they'll have some takeaway as a reward or anything like that. But I always get a lot of questions around self-sabotage. So do you have any tips for our listeners at home to try and combat um any of that sort of negative self-talk, self-sabotage that so many people, particularly women, really struggle with? It's funny. You're actually the third person that's asked me about this in two days. So I think there's, you know, something going on in the universe. But Must be Corona. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Well, yeah, because, um, you know, I think it's been challenging for everyone. Yeah. Um, you know, whereas it's, a to- it's totally an opportunity to reset and like set up loads of good habits. Mm-hmm. It's also been a stressful time and a time where it's easier to regress to some of the you know, things that make us feel better in the short term. So this is really about two things, stimulus control and delayed gratification. So stimulus control is identifying what the thing is that causes you temptation and then restricting it in your environment. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if it's cookies or chocolate, then um, basically not having them in the house or, Mm -hmm. you know, having them kind of at, at least out of sight. Um, and you know, it's, it's also very important who you're around. So not just who you live with, but the kind of people that you hang out with. So, 
if they're people that's like, yeah, let's go for a takeaway, then it's quite hard to resist that. So I'm, yeah. you know, I'm not saying that you can, that you can't hang around with your friends, but I think if you have some kind of agreement between you because you've seen these patterns of self-sabotage, mm-hmm. um, then it's really helpful. So for example, um, when I practice my um, like full-on intermittent fasting with the 5-2 diet, then I have an agreement with my husband about the days and what I'm going to have to do and what he needs to do to like not make me feel like I just want to eat everything that's on his plate or, you know. Um, so So I do that because I know that I have reasonably good willpower, but it's going to be even better for me. So, you know, I said to him, so if I say I want to eat that extra thing or, I mean, basically what I say to him is you can't be drinking wine on the days that I'm fasting because I'm going to look at you and I'm going to want to join you. And that's not, you know, that's not fair. So to support me, there are some things that you need to not do in front of me, like eat chocolate or drink mm-hmm. wine. <laughs> um, so, um, so either restricting access to your, you know, identifying what your stimulus is and either avoiding it completely or just restricting access to it by having it out of sight or having an agreement with somebody that you don't get access to it, like, you know, that you can have one cookie three times a week or something like that, but not the rest of the time. Mm-hmm. And then the delayed gratification thing, this this has come from research that I looked into and, and it really works, which is if you are tempted to you know, eat a burger. Mm-hmm. And if you say to yourself, let's say it's lunchtime and you want to eat a burger. If you say to yourself, okay, I'm not going to have a burger for lunch, but if I still feel like this at dinner time, I could have a burger then. Usually, because cravings are quite temporary, you, won't, you might still want a burger vaguely, but you won't have that absolute urge to have a burger three hours later that you do now. So usually it's passed and you don't have the burger. But also at the time, knowing I can have it later also reduces the urge. Yeah. So you can choose the, you know, you can eat the salad for lunch thinking, but I know I can have a burger later, but usually later you don't want it. So it's a bit of a double win. Um, So I suggest that people try that because we're mostly sort of instant gratification kind of people. But if we think, all right, I can, I can, I have the willpower to not do the instant gratification, but I feel better knowing that I could have it later. Mm-hmm. Um, that actually really works. And, you know, once you try that and you see it work for you, it's quite a helpful tool. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And I like to talk about cravings in terms of like waves. So you just got to ride the waves because when you feel like it's so intense and you feel like you're almost about to give in, that's like the height of the craving and it's about to drop back down if you just hold out that extra two minutes, that extra five minutes, that extra 10 minutes. So I love that sort of promising yourself that you can have it later and then you absolutely can if you still want it, but at least you're not eating it in the moment when the cravings are most intense and you're probably going to overeat it and then feel pretty crappy about it later. So I do like that, just holding out that little bit more. Actually, and you know, I like you, I'm not an advocate of any diets. Um, but I I try everything that I recommend to other people. So I tried the five two diet because it looked like a very effective diet and they also said that it had brain benefits. So I wanted to know like how it works before I would recommend it to some of my clients. And what I learned from the fasting is I actually learned an analogy for emotions, which is when you're really hungry, normally when you're hungry, you eat. Mm. And that's like saying, when I'm angry. I'll, I'll shout. But when I realized that when you're hung, really hungry, you don't have to eat and it does pass, th- that's an analogy for emotions as well. Like when you feel a strong emotion, you don't have to act on it and it does pass. Mm. So I had read this book, um, Siddhartha by Herman Hesse, years ago. 
And it's about a monk who sort of tries to re-enter real life and tries to get a job at one point. And people say, well, what can you do? And he says, I can wait, I can pray, and I can fast. And I sort of got it on a spiritual level, but I didn't really get it until I practiced fasting myself. And I realized that when you learn that level of self-discipline, you can apply it to other things. And that was, I found that really empowering. Mm, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I don't know if I'm ever someone, I, d- I definitely did try fasting because I'm like, you. I've tried everything. I've tried every diet just so I can say to my clients, definitely don't do that. That's terrible. Or that shake, that shake diet was terrible. The cabbage soup, absolutely no way. <laughs> but yeah, fasting something that I generally work out very early in the morning. So fasting is just something that doesn't suit my lifestyle. Mm. But yeah, having, knowing that willpower and knowing that you can do that helps you to almost succeed and, and replicate that in other areas of your life, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really does. Now, I'd love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about um, mindset because before we jumped on this podcast, you quickly mentioned the growth and the fixed mindset, which I love. And so many people who are just those, you know, typical like negative Nellies, what we say here in Australia, this people who are just always negative, everything's always wrong. They can't see that they're stuck in that fixed mindset. So what is the difference between somebody who has a fixed mindset and somebody who has a growth mindset? Because I feel like even just knowing that and practicing the growth mindset would also be helpful for things like self-sabotage and habit forming as well, I could imagine. Yeah, that's a lovely little link you've made there. So so I actually know Carol Dweck at Stanford who wrote the book about growth mindset. And Mm. when the book first came out, it was definitely quite polarized, like you're either growth mindset or your fixed mindset. But then, you know, I sort of said to her, given what we know about neuroplasticity, surely it's a spectrum that people can move along and, mm. and may even be different. You know, you might be very growth mindset at work, but not so much when you're parenting, for example, or, you know, vice versa. And so when I was writing my book, I, I used Carol's research, but I added the neuroplasticity onto it and I made it into abundance and lack. And so this is very important from a brain point of view, because of the way that we had to survive when we lived in the cave, mm-hmm. the, the psychological effect of, of perceived loss is two to 2.5 times as strong on the brain as the equivalent reward. And so the classic example of this from behavioral economics is if you walked from the parking lot to your office one morning, and by the time you got to your desk, you realized that you'd lost $50. You might retrace your steps, go back to your car, like maybe ask the guy at the reception desk if he, they'd seen it. Um, and the chances are that you'd be annoyed about that all day. Mm. If you walked from your car to your desk and you found $50 in the parking lot, you'd be like quite pleased when you found it. You might keep it, you might give it to charity, whatever. But pretty much by the time you get to your desk and you start working, you'd have forgotten about it. So it's the same amount of money. But when you think you've lost it, it, it has a much stronger effect on your brain than when you, when you get something. Mm. And so we have to really work hard to override that negative Nelly syndrome, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that I explain it is that in the modern day, that survival mechanism isn't helpful for us anymore. It's helpful to take healthy risk. It's helpful, helpful to, you know, take that leap of faith and move forward and try to, you know, sort of expand your horizons. So knowing that it's a natural gearing. I mean, some people obviously are further along the spectrum, but wherever you are on the spectrum, knowing that you can, you can override it in the moment, but also that with repeated practice, you can move yourself further along the spectrum of, of being somebody that just sees 
a failure as a learning opportunity or sees mm. opportunity in all sorts of situations, even if they're adverse. And I think yeah, actually that, you know, what's happened during COVID is a really good example because, you know, clearly some people have, have had to go out of work because it's just not physically like practical. And so it doesn't apply to people where there's like literally no choice. But a lot of people like you and I, for example, have had to go from working partly virtual, but partly in real life to all virtual. Some people have managed that really well and some people haven't. Mm. So it's just a case of, you know, whether you see an opportunity somewhere to do things differently and better. Um, and if they, even if they don't work out that you find that you learn something from it, that's the way to move yourself along that spectrum. Mm, I love it. And I just love how powerful. I remember the first time I read about the fixed mindset versus the growth mindset. I made myself almost like this promise that every time I made a mistake or every time I feel like I failed or I was embarrassed about something that I did, I would just promise myself that I had found another way that didn't work versus, you know, I failed or um, it's so embarrassing I couldn't do that and everybody else could. It's like, no, I've just found another way that didn't work and another way that didn't work. And eventually I will find the way that does work. And so for for me, it was just a really great um, ability to reframe that like a failure into more of a positive thing. So I generally talk to my clients really around always trying to reframe negative thoughts into positive ones and continue on with that growth mindset. You just found a way that didn't work <laughs> versus actually failing and you should give up. <laughs> I mean, you really are somebody that lives that and I know that that's true. And so, and I think it's, it's very easy to talk about, but it isn't easy to do. But if you practice enough, it does become natural. So mm-hmm. everybody can be more like you. And I love what you just said about replace a negative thought with a positive thought, because um, a lot of my research is kind of based against, you know, the the fact that I've got an Indian cultural heritage. So I looked into Hinduism and Buddhism, and then I looked into the neuroplasticity research to see, you know, and I looked at laws of attraction and I looked at the neuroscience research. So um, in Buddhism, they say that you should immediately replace any negative thought with a positive thought. And what the neuroscience says is that, the more you think something, the more that pathway becomes embedded in your brain. So if you're used to thinking, oh, it won't work out, oh, I failed, mm-hmm. then you know you, you believe that's true more and more. But if every time you think it's not going to work out, you just force yourself to think it is going to work out. I can make it work out. I'll find a way, just like you said. Then eventually that becomes your natural way of thinking. You overwrite the negative neural pathway. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's either just you know more quickly you start to think of positive things or eventually you get yourself to the point where even faced with a challenge you say okay I'll find a way to work this out um and I think building that that resilience and actually gratitude lists are another way to do it which is that often gratitude lists start by being quite external like my family my job my ability to travel and Mm -hmm. if you can start to move it to things like my resilience, my determination, my creativity, Mm. then that's so helpful when it comes to a crisis because you've kept telling yourself, I'm resourceful, I'm resilient, I'll, you know, I find a different way to do things. Um, So I think the message from neuroplasticity is like in the good times, build up these resources because they'll be there for you in the tough times. Mm -hmm. Don't wait till something goes wrong to try to build up your resilience. 
Definitely. Just keep chipping away at it every day. <laughs> now, you could probably see my vision board behind me in the podcast. We had a quick chat about that before we jumped on. I wanted to ask you, and I know that you do, your, I guess, um, beliefs and that sort of thing around tools such as visualizing, such as gratitude and manifestation and using tools like vision boards. How powerful are they in retraining our brain and creating the life that we want? Because I always say to people, are you living your dream life? And they say, oh, well, no, why not? And like, they just don't have, um, not like an excuse for it, but they just don't know why they're like, I'm, I'm just not, but every day I wake up and I look at my vision board and I think that is my dream life. And I know that I will live that life. It might not be tomorrow or the next day, but I'm going to get there. And I just feel like it's such a powerful tool. So I'd love to talk for you to tell our listeners a little bit. Is there some research and science behind visualization, manifestation, tools such as vision boards? Okay. You have totally got me onto my favorite topic and I just... Just to prove that we haven't like set this conversation up at all, I want, <laughs> I just want to like I'm just I've got my book next to me and I'm seeing like the title is the source open your mind change your life so you know that's kind of what we've been talking about and then the back of the book says if you could have anything you want in life what would it be breakthroughs in neuroscience are proving that we can actively alter the way our brain works and there are two entire chapters on vision boards in my book. Amazing. Yeah. So one's about how vision boards and visualization work from the neural point of view, but then one is the practical, like how to make your vision board, where to put it, where to place items on it, how often to look at it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's so many cool things I could say, but one thing I want to say that I think is really in keeping with your message is that I call them action boards because I'm 100% against the idea of people creating a fantasy and then sitting at home and waiting for it to come true. Mm -hmm. I believe you have to do something every day, even if it's just look at the board intently, but preferably a practical action that moves you towards those things becoming true. The difference between the science aspect of it and the sort of the new age aspect that gets written off as pseudoscience, but it's actually not, it's backed up by science. But the reason is when people talk about thought vibrations and the universe will provide it to you, that's, that's making you powerless. Mm. What, what you and I are trying to do is empower people to say, you can bring these things into your life by having your brain and body in optimal condition, by thinking as abundantly as possible, by not letting failure get you down. And so um, I just want to pick out some of the most, um, you know, sciencey but fun things that will, will add to what I'm sure you've already said about vision boards. So one is, do you know about the Tetris effect? No. Please. <laughs> did you play did you play Tetris on a Game Boy yes, when you were a kid? Yes, definitely. And even on my computer as an adult sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's soothing. I like it. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's super cool. I, I was like I was obsessed with it. So so I remember playing it till like, you know, way too late at night and then closing my eyes to go to sleep and seeing the little bricks falling down <laughs> in my mind's eye. And so that's actually become now known as a psychological phenomenon. So the thing that you look at last thing at night, because your subconscious is very open in the, in the time of going from being awake to falling asleep. And so the last thing you look at imprints onto your subconscious really powerfully. And so, you know, my vision board, I keep it by my bed. So I look at it last thing at night and first thing in the morning. But, you know, wherever it is, you can go and have a look at it. You can have a photo of it on your phone and look at it just last thing at night. So that's one thing about how the brain works. But basically what's behind that is uh, two mechanisms in the brain called 
selective um, filtering and or selective attention and then value tagging. Mm-hmm. And so because we're bombarded with thousands of bits of information through our five senses, everything we hear, everything we see, every person we meet, every memory we recall, um, we can't be conscious of all of those things all the time. So the brain naturally filters out what's not relevant to us. Mm. In the same way that you're not aware of your clothes on your body all day, your brain is filtering out things that it doesn't consider essential to your survival. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at a vision board every day, you're telling your brain, these things are essential to my survival. And so just by the fact of that repetition and visualization, your brain's more likely to notice things that are relevant to the things, the pictures on your board. And you know, visual does impress on your subconscious more than words. And to include those things, in what it keeps filtered in. And so, so the selective filtering then goes on to selective attention, which is that you notice and pay attention to these things that are passing you by. That gives you the opportunity to grasp the thing that would have passed you by if you hadn't kept telling your brain, this is what I want, this is what I'm looking out for. Mm-hmm. And the value tagging part is um, that those things that you've got in your attention list get tagged by your brain in order of importance. And there's a very almost like com- computational element to that where it's like my job is essential for my survival. Like keeping my children safe is essential for my survival. But then there's more of an emotional element to it too. And that's where the vision board influences your brain more and puts those things towards the top of the list, like um, the dream job, the dream holiday, mm-hmm. the, the dream house. Um, the continual visual reminder keeps those things in the attention list and value tagged higher up than when you're doing the day job, putting food on the table, trying to get your kids to do their, you know, homeschooling. Those things go to the bottom of the list because you're busy, you know, attending to the most important basic things. Um, So, you know, I just, I love the fact that there's a hundred percent, you know, neuroscience explanation for how it works. There are so many stories. I mean, I get like, I get DMs on Instagram all the time from people saying my vision board came true, but people want the science and that, you know, it's, there's clearly a lot there to show how it works. Mm. And I love the most important point that you made was that you can't just, because I remember when I first heard about visualization and manifestation, I was like, this is cool. I want to get more, you know, I'm very evidence-based and practical with my my research, but I also have this holistic side where I just want to know a little bit more. But sometimes for me, some of the things are a little bit too woo-woo. And I remember watching this video on manifestation and it was basically, you just have to incant like say it over and over again and it'll come true. And it was this YouTube video and the guy was like, and I became a millionaire. And I just remember sitting there being like, BS, like you can't just <laughs> visualize $2 million into your life. And so I think that's where people take that one, you know, a little bit too far where it's not a tool that you're going to visualize how rich you can be, but you can sort of put some materialistic things on there. Like I have um the dream car that I want on there. So I've got this Lexus that I've always wanted. And I love how you say like when you the value tagging and all I see when I drive around now is this Lexus because it's in my in my radar in my you know it's in my subconscious somewhere I see it everywhere (laughs) whereas I'm like I never used to to recognize that car until I put it on my vision board so I love that that you've really made it um something that the things that we focus on almost that will will find ways to make it happen or take grab those opportunities um without letting them pass us by if we weren't continuously to to focus on it and I think it's really important for us you know to share with the people who who listen to us that there's no shame in putting 
an amount of money on there. There's no shame in putting a baby on there if that's what you really want. And, mm. you know, I, the thing I like about the fact that you're, I can see yours behind you is that you've got, to, you've got to put it out there. If you're ashamed of the thing that you want, if you can't tell anyone, mm. then that neural pathway is not, what, you know, it's not strong in your brain. Mm. Um, so, you know, mine were always visible in my, in my, my home. Um, to be honest now, I do, I do do them more on Pinterest because it just sort of got harder to get like the images that really resonated with me and stuff without being able to have a bit of a better filtering mechanism. Um, but yeah, you know, don't, people shouldn't hold back. They should put everything that they want on their vision boards. Absolutely. I love that tip. I never even thought about Pinterest because I made mine. It's quite, it's quite big from what you could see. And mm. that probably took about a hundred dollars of magazines to create that. Like I went to the <laughs> shop and I bought probably about 12, yeah, probably about 20 different magazines. And you're right. I probably only took one or two pictures out of every single magazine. And then I got to the point where I was like, I know I really want to put something on there. I've actually got top rated podcasts and my ah. podcast has been ranked number one to two in the nutrition category in Australia for many months Yay. now. And I'm like, I made that come yeah. true, but I couldn't find a magazine with podcasts in it at all. So I went to Google and basically just borrowed a picture off Google. But I do love that idea that you have around Pinterest because that way you could save it to something like a screensaver on your phone. And how many times a day do we pick up our phone? Like, honestly, like I would be probably close to 50 to 100 because I'm constantly checking in with my coaching clients and answering DMs and that sort of thing. How powerful would that be to have all of that in your subconscious if you created it just on your phone? Totally. totally. Great tip. I also (laughs) like metaphor. So, you know, you could have found a picture of some really cool headphones like you're wearing now. Um, when I wanted to write my book, I was sort of thinking like, what would I get, a book or a bookshelf or something? And then I found like this really quirky, old-fashioned typewriter and I was like, that's it. So, and it doesn't, you know, it can be even vaguer than that as long as you know what it means. Love it. And then following on from that, you mentioned some amazing chapters in your book, which I can't wait to read. I'd love you to tell our listeners to finish off this incredible podcast a little bit more about your book, where the inspiration came from, um, where they can where they can purchase it, and also a little bit more about how we can get in contact with you as well. Thank you. Um, so we sort of like, we covered it already in that I, I, as a child, I struggled with having this cultural background, but growing up in the UK and then doing conventional medicine. And I sort of kept my spiritual life and my science life really separate. Mm. And then it just got to the point where I, I was almost just curious. And I thought, I wonder if you can explain the laws of attraction with neuroscience. And when I sat down, actually, I was on holiday and I, I sat down to do the research and I was I was actually blown away by how easy it was to explain them by neuroscience. Mm. And so. Um, and, and, you know, I sort of, I was approached then by Penguin and they had an idea for me to write about, so, you know, how we talked about rest, fuel, hydrate, oxygenate and simplify. They said, we've had books on sleep. We've had books on exercise. We think as a neuroscientist, you could bring all that together. And I said, well, I could do that, but I have this other idea about explaining the laws of attraction with neuroscience and like visualization and vision boards. And they were like, we could get the pen and the contract out right now. <laughs> so, um, so the book is published by Penguin in, in Australia as well it's the source open your mind change your life it's on amazon and it's in lots of bookshops in australia i've actually um i've got a photo of myself somewhere on instagram i think in a bookshop in um brisbane holding it that's very exciting to see it there um and i'm most active on instagram so dr tara swart dr tara swart i have a website taraswart.com i'm also on twitter but instagram is the best way to keep in touch 
Wonderful. And I love that you mentioned that it's in Aussie bookstores. And I like to do what I call a little bit of a public service um, good deed. Whenever I go into the bookstores, I grab the, the wonderful books, which I'm definitely going to go hunting for yours. And I pull them to the front and I put them in front of other books that don't really have research <laughs> and evidence and backing to, to back them, you know, celebrity chefs in their meal plans and that sort of thing. I tend to like to bring doctors, put them, put them right at the front in the bookstores. <laughs> so I'll make sure to, get, to headhunt yours next time and make sure that's at the forefront. <laughs> Please send me a picture of that when it's done with you like next to it saying like this book's at the front. I definitely will. Well, Dr. Tara, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. It's been absolutely incredible. You've given our listeners so many things to think about. Um, So thank you so much. I'm very, very grateful for your time today. Thank you so much for having me on the number one rated nutritional podcast in Australia. Well done. I made that happen. I brought it into life. (laughs) Amazing. Thank you so much. Likewise. And our listeners, we will catch you in the podcast next week.